first whooping I ever got in school was in first grade. Now, Paul Paul here went to school before there was kindergarten. So I started school in, uh, straight in first grade at, at Bogachitta. And, 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 and I went to the prestigious Bogachitta Attendance Center is where I attended. And um, as you well know, it's out in the sticks. Um, we had to pump in sunshine. We were so far out from everything. And so at the prestigious Bogachitta Attendance Center, on one of the fences surrounding the playground, we didn't have first grade playgrounds or second grade playgrounds. We had a playground with a merry-go-round that had planks missing from it. So when you really want to have fun, you'd get under the merry-go-round and try to stick your hand in it as they pushed it really fast and try not to get your fingers broken, you know. You know, we saw who could go the highest in the swing. I literally had a buddy of mine, like, fall out the swing and break everything. So, you know, hey, good times, man, good times. Um, but on the fence surrounding the playground, there were some blackberries. And Miss Smoke who was an angel sent from God, an amazing lady. She really was, she really was a great teacher, my favorite teacher probably ever had, Miss Moak. She told us, now children, there are blackberries on the fence beside the playground. So when you go to the playground, do not go and eat the blackberries. So of course, what was the first thing we did when we went to the playground? Man, we tore those blackberries up. Are you kidding me? Man, we sit there, we're just, I don't know how many of y'all ever eaten blackberry. I'm assuming we're all from Mississippi, so we've all been out in the woods and, you know, things like that. So if you've ever eaten blackberries, you know, uh, out in the woods, there's no way to eat a blackberry and come back clean. It's just impossible. So you're going to have blackberry juice all over your mouth and all over your clothes. And you're just going to come back looking like a blackberry. I mean, it's just the way it works. So I go, we go and all of me and my buddies, we eat our blackberries and we have a big old time. And of course, we're drenched in it. So we go back to class. Miss Moke says, no children. I told you, if you go to the blackberry bush and eat it, you're going to be punished. So if you, stood the, if you ate to the blackberry bush and ate it, I'm going to ask you to stand up and you're going to receive a paddling. Well, I'm dumb, but I ain't stupid. I'm not standing up. You kidding? She just told me if I stand up, I'm getting a whooping. I'm not standing up to get a whooping. You kidding me? Because uh, so, so, so all my buddies stood up and got their whooping. I'm thinking to myself, yep, I didn't got away with this one. Then my buddy says, well, Miss Moke, Andy ate the berries too. Tim, I was this close to getting away with it. This close to getting away with it. Miss Moke said, well, Andy... Uh, you know, you need, yeah, you need to come get your whooping. So, you know, uh, so I, I went up to her and I said, okay, Miss Moke, I, I was really scared because I, this is back when I was, you know, good. And so I was afraid of the whooping at school. I was, I was afraid of the whooping at school. Then I was afraid of the whooping when I got home. I don't know about you, but getting home was worse than whooping at school because my daddy was like Zorro. I mean, when he, when you got in trouble, he came up in the belt and just came out and he was, he just started whooping everybody and everything. Just get out the way when daddy came with his belt. I mean, you were, he was going to leave a mark on everything and everybody. So, so I told Miss Smoke, I said, Miss Smoke, I'm, I'm a little scared. She said, oh, Andy, it's going to be okay. So she gave me my three licks and I looked at her and said, Miss Smoke, you're right. That didn't even hurt. So then she gave me another whooping. It's a big day, man. Two whoopings for the price of one. I mean, you just can't beat that. But um, we ate our blackberries, and I was going to get away with it. And my buddy said, no, that's not, right. that's not right for me to get in trouble when you did the same thing I did, and you're going to get away with it. This, this, isn't, this isn't going to happen. So he told on me, and I got my whooping. That was, well, it wasn't right for everybody else to get in trouble and me to get off scot-free. It just wasn't right. It just wasn't right. Nineveh was the worst 
They were. They, they, were, they were the worst. I don't, I don't know how much you remember from your, um, from your Western Civ and your Bible history about the different empires that came up in the part of the world where Israel is. Israel, the, the, the strip of land where the Holy Land is, that, that strip between the mountains and the Mediterranean, is arguably the most valuable strip of land in world history because you cannot get... Uh, the best way to get from Europe and Asia to Africa is through that part of the world. I mean, so that part of the world where the Holy Land exists is the most valuable piece of property really in world history. So many wars have been fought over that land to see whoever secured it. Whoever had that land had access to the best route of travel. I, I've often said, if you're, like, if you're going to go from Madison anywhere south, east, or west, you're going to go through the stack. I mean, you can go around it, but the most direct way to get from here to anywhere south of here, east or west, is most likely the stack. The Holy Land was the stack. It was the route of out access from Europe and Asia to Africa to Egypt. So, always followed over. So, whoever the dominant empire was wanted to have possession of the Holy Land. So, you had lots of empires bubble up. You had Assyria was actually one of the first ones. Well, you had Egypt before that. You had Egypt then Assyria, then you had, and then Babylon defeated Assyria, and Persia defeated Babylon, and then Greece defeated Persia, then Rome defeated, d- defeated Greece, and then eventually the Ottomans, and eventually the Great, Great Britain. But most of your empires had two dominant thoughts. You had your Greeks and your Persians primarily. They wanted you to become them. You may remember the word Hellenistic from your studies. Hellenistic was how Greek wanted to make everything else Greek. Greek, the Greeks imported Greek culture across the world. So the Greeks wanted you to be Greek. Kind of the Persians did the same thing and the Babylonians did too. They wanted you, the Babylonians, you remember from the Bible, the Babylonians took the Jews into exile to make them good Babylonians. Okay, they wanted you to become them. Then you had the other perspective, which was Rome. Rome didn't care what you did, man. Don't cause trouble and pay your taxes. Beyond that, they don't care. Don't cause trouble. Don't start wars. Behave yourself and pay your taxes. Rome could care less. So remember Jesus, how all Pilate wanted was peace because he didn't want trouble. He didn't want a war. He didn't want trouble. So that was, that, that was the two dominant views of empire, except for Assyria. They were mean. They were hateful. They, they really were. They governed by fear. They wanted you to be afraid. They wanted you to know, don't mess with them. Now, Rome did that occasionally, but it was really more to make a lesson of you. That was Syria's, Assyria's dominant view of government was fear. I want to read to you a couple stories. One king sh- showed how much fear he wanted when he cut off the heads of 216 rebelling soldiers and piled them together. The, the, their leader had his skin filleted and placed upon the walls of the town. In neighboring cities, rebelling nobles also were skinned alive and had their skin displayed like trophies. Another king defeated another city in order that the hands and feet cut off, of the, cut off the soldiers of the fallen city. Other soldiers found themselves without noses and ears. Also, many had their eyes gorged out. 
the heads of the leaders of the town were hung from the trees around the city. Another instance, Assyria defeated Damascus. They took the Damascus king, brought him to their town in chains, and then chained him outside the city with dogs to serve as a guard for their city. They wanted you to be afraid of them. They were cruel and inhuman. And you could make a historic argument Assyria was the worst. They were among the, some of the worst people to ever, to ever govern because their, their governing philosophy was fear. So, that's why Jonah ran. Because he didn't want God to forgive him. Because what does scripture say? Jonah said, this is why I ran, because I knew that you were merciful and slow and abounding in love and mercy. And he did not want God to forgive Nineveh. They had earned their whooping. And it would, would not be fair for them to get out of it. Jonah was like my buddy. It's not right. It's not right for you to get out of this. You have earned your whooping. You have done so much evil and so much wrong and so much mean. And Nineveh, you deserve the coming judgment of God. You've earned it. And you should receive it. You should receive the cup that is prepared for you. That is why Jonah ran, because he knew the character of God. And who is God? God is merciful. God is kind. God is loving. God did not, Jonah did not want God to show them grace because they did not deserve it. Why did, why did God show them grace? Why did God show these undeserved people grace? A couple reasons. First, he made them. I mean, he, he, that was the point of the bush that he planted up. He made them, and he loved them. Even though they were undeserving, even though they were unworthy, he still made them, and he still loved them. That, 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 and God is merciful. Think of the gospel lesson we read earlier this morning, how unfair it is for the guy that showed up at 8 o'clock in the morning to work all day long for a full day's wage, and the guy that showed up at 5 to get the same wage. That's not fair. And what, is the, what does the landowner say? Who are you to tell me how to show my mercy? Who are you to, to tell me how to live my grace? God showed mercy because God created the Ninevites. Even though they were wicked, even though they were cruel, even though they were mean, he still made them. He still formed them in his image. He still was their creator. I heard somebody say this one time. You will never meet a person that Jesus Christ did not die for. You will never in your life meet a person that Jesus Christ did not die for. Whether they deserve it or not, whether they've earned it or not. Scripture's clear, y'all. For God so loved the world. Not the good guys or the bad guys, he so loved the world. Not the folks like me, but the, he loved the world. 
whether they deserved it or not. Scripture says that through Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Scripture says that God desires for all to be saved. All. That's one of those big key Methodist words, all. He loved the world. So, God made them. Second reason why, they repented. I mean, Jonah, if we didn't read all of Jonah, but Jonah goes to him and says, hey, y'all, you fixing to get your whooping. It's going to be bad. It's going to be like Andy's daddy with the belt. It's going to be bad. Y'all going to be sorry. And Scripture says they repented. Everyone put on sackcloth and ashes. They all repented. And we see the Lord showed them mercy. They repented and God showed mercy. But the main reason why, I think it's, it's so significant. It's verse 11 of this, uh, of, the, of this text where it says this in verse 11. I want to read, read it to you again. It says this. And should I, not be more concer- should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, which there are 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from, the, from their left, and also many animals? Okay, y'all, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a real question that I want you to stop and think about. And, and you don't have to, I don't want you to give me an answer. I don't want you to shout anything out. I don't want you to raise your hand. But I do, I want you to seriously, in your heart of hearts, ponder this question. And, and really come up with an answer. I mean, I, I want you to come up with an answer for this question. And I don't, the question is this. Does Jesus Christ make a difference in your life? And I don't want want your church answer. I want you to think about this now where you find yourself. Because your church answer is, yeah, sure he does. I mean, you're going to tell me that. Of course you are. But I want you to 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 think in your heart of hearts, your soul of souls, do you really and literally believe that meeting Jesus Christ makes a difference? Do you believe, do you really and truly believe that accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior makes a difference in your life? Do you really and truly believe that accepting his justifying grace makes a difference in your life? Do you really actually believe that becoming a Christian, that accepting Christ, that making him Lord of your life really makes a difference in your life? I mean, I, and I, I, I'm gonna, I, want you to th- I really want you to think about that. I want you to have an answer for that question now. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life? Okay. I want you to think about that. If your answer to that question is no, then, hey, you can leave. I mean, I mean like, take a nap. I mean, seriously, because, like, the rest of the sermon really won't, won't apply. I don't want you to leave. I love you. But take a nap, you know kick off night for another 10 minutes. Um, But if you really, in your heart of hearts, truly believe that meeting Jesus Christ, that following Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life, how can you expect someone who has not met Jesus Christ to act like somebody who has? If you truly believe that Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life, how can you expect someone that doesn't know Jesus to act like somebody who does? What we do, I do not expect folks that don't know Jesus to act like somebody that does. Because I believe that Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life. What we do is we expect folks that don't know Jesus. We expect folks that are lost to act like Christians. And you know what happens? 
we grow to resent them. Instead of loving them as Scripture commands us to. Instead of loving the world as Scripture commands us to. Because remember, Jesus died for the world. Jesus died for everybody. What happens when we expect lost folk, when we expect people that don't know Jesus to act like those that do know Jesus, we will in time grow to resent them. We will in time grow to not like them. And instead of loving them as Scripture commands us to, we will grow to not like them. We will grow to judge them. We will say, Lord, get them. Get them, Lord. We will be like Jonah with Nineveh. Lord, get them. I know I'm bad, but they're like a lot worse. Get them. Instead of living at our biblical command to love them to Jesus. If Jesus Christ makes a difference, then only Jesus Christ matters. Not your actions, not your morality, not your right and your wrong, but your Jesus. Jesus makes the difference. Jesus is the key, and only Jesus saves. Only Jesus sanctifies. Only Jesus makes a difference. And we cannot expect those that don't know him to think, look, and act like those that do if we think he makes a difference. If you think he doesn't make a difference, then sure, expect lost folk to act like Christians. But if you really, in your heart of heart, thinks he makes a difference, we can't think that way because we're going to grow to despise the people we are called to love. I'm not saying we got to agree with them. I'm not saying we're not called to take stands. I'm not saying we're not called to live a certain way. I'm not saying any of that. But what I am saying, if Jesus Christ is the thing that makes the difference, we've got to love those that don't know him. Because only through that will they come to know him. Because that's what it's about. That's all it's about. Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. Jesus, he is the difference maker. He is the life changer. He is the one that does it. And so when we live that out, he changes things. Y'all, I, I preached a revival last week. I love preaching revivals. They're a lot of fun. And I always tell folks when I do revivals, I got a problem. I got a real problem. You know what my problem is? I believe this stuff. Isn't that crazy? I actually believe Jesus changes lives. I actually believe that life conquers death. I actually believe that good's gonna win. I actually believe that life is gonna win. Isn't that crazy? I believe it. So I'm not scared. I'm not angry. I'm not mad. I'm full of joy and peace because God's gonna win. And my job is to love people to my loving Savior. That doesn't mean I always agree with them. Doesn't even mean I always like them. But it means I got to love them to Jesus because only Jesus saves. And if we believe, if we truly believe that Jesus changes lives, then we've got to offer Jesus nothing else. I had the chance at this revival this week to pray with a gentleman. I don't know what his faith was before that night or after that night, but I know this. During the altar call, he came to me like a rocket and put his arms around me and said, I need to get back right with God again. 
And we prayed for God to restore him, restore his life, and restore his family. I believe with all that I am and all that I ever could be, and it's why I do this, I believe that Jesus Christ changes things. And I believe that Jesus Christ changes lives. And our job, our calling, is to love folks to him. Because Jesus saves. And I believe that Jesus Christ makes all the difference. May we live out his love for a dying world, a world in need of redemption, a world that needs Jesus. May we live out his love for all the world to hear. Let us pray.